Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Sajin Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. And today we also have a special guest co-host, Dr. Maddie Giegold. Hi. <laughs> we also have a special guest with us, Mr. Lano Tukai. Hi. Today we're going to be talking about C-spine immobilization. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. Thank you so much, Lano, for coming on our podcast today. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Eric Lano Tukai. I go by Lano. I've been a medic here with American Ambulance for a little over five years. I've been involved in EMS for the last 30 years, since 1991. I've worked in a couple different areas throughout California, Central Valley primarily. But uh, Fresno's my home, and this is where I started my career. Fantastic. We're glad you're here and helping yeah. take care of our patients at the Valley. Lano, tell us about your case. This case was at one of those really subtle moments where you have to really look at the patient and picture what happened prior to our arrival. In this uh, case, we ended up having a gentleman who was riding his mountain bike on a, one of our local trails here in the uh, Clovis area. And for whatever reason, his front wheel locked up and he face planted. So he went up over the handlebars, uh, landed on his face, bracing it with his wrists, wrists and hands, ended with a broken nose. He was up walking around, but then he felt a little weak and woozy, so he laid down. When we arrived, he was pale, cool, diaphoretic. He denied any numbness, any tingling, denied any loss of consciousness, denied any neck or back pain. His only complaint was that his face hurt, and he had an obvious epistaxis and some swelling to his nose. But on further evaluation, his blood pressure was in the 70s. Even though he's been working out, he's a very athletic guy, that blood pressure is just too low. So we know that something else is going on. Another, and with his other vitals, was he tachycardic no, or did he have anything else? he wasn't else? tachycardic. He was actually in the mid-60s. After having just ride his, rode his bike for you know a couple miles, you'd think he'd be a little bit faster. But no, heart rate was right about 60, 64. Uh, blood pressures were in the mid-70s. These were repeat blood pressures. We had a very weak radial pulse, had a good brachial pulse. And um, I was working with another medic, and we were like, okay, what is going on here? You know, there's no cardiac history, nothing else to indicate that. And so right away, we're like, this guy probably needs to be in C-spine. Even though we don't C-spine on mechanism, we still use, you know, our judgment based on our differentials and what we discover through, you know, the questioning process. And so the decision was made to put him into full spinal mobilization, not just position of comfort or... In some areas where it's just a collar, we had him on a long board, we had him strapped up, head was secured, and we took our time to do it. Now, this is one of those skills that the more you practice it, the faster you become. And luckily, between this other medic and I, we, you know, we had a number of years of experience, so we were able to get him in there very effectively, very rapidly. Now, the transport 
we took him to a level one trauma center just because we looked at the mechanism and we're saying, okay, depending on how fast he was going, something should be wrong. We're not seeing it outright, but we know something is wrong based on what we can prove. And never or throughout, he didn't have any like motor deficits or no, sensory no, changes. Yeah, no numbness, no tingling. Uh, he had good ranges of motion. Everything was good and strong. And by the, when we got him into the ER, we got him into trauma too. And they scanned his neck right away, and they saw that he had a fractured uh, C2 and C3 vertebrae. Great wow, that's case. A great catch. Yeah, so lucky, you know, luckily for him, it was just it was just that he had a helmet on, so he didn't have you know head trauma, but he had the you know the facial dental trauma. Yeah, those vital signs were key to give it away that there's something much more major going on here. Exactly. So um, you know what we learned in medical school, you know, you C spine, C spine, C spine, but then. Locally, our protocols are very dependent on how the patient presents. But there's also that fine line where it says paramedic discretion. And that basically rolls down to what we've experienced on our own career paths. But also, when we look at the mechanism, if there's enough mechanism involved to where someone should be hurt, chances are they're going to be hurt. You know, the body can only take so much, even if it is something as simple as a ground level fall or in this case, a bicycle accident where you're not going motor vehicle speed, there's just no protection. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming and joining the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So before we jump into C-spine immobilization, let's meet our special guest co-host, Maddie Giegold. Um, tell us about yourself, Maddie. Hi, I'm Maddie. I am a second year resident in emergency medicine at UCSF Fresno in Fresno, California. I am originally from near Chicago, but ended up out here for my training. I've finished medical school and am on my way to being a practicing emergency physician. I really love trail running. I really love flowers and ice cream. And those are the most important things about me. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks for being with us today to talk about C-spine immobilization. Thanks for having me. So C-spine injuries are a small but very important part of injuries seen in the emergency department as they can cause significant long-term morbidity and disability. These kinds of injuries include fractures and dislocations. So the C-spine is composed of seven vertebrae that enclose the spine, and this section of the spine has a lot of flexibility, which makes it really susceptible to injury. About 2 to 4% of trauma patients have cervical spine injuries. They're more common in males than in females, and they particularly tend to occur between the ages of 15 and 30, and also greater than 65 years old. As many as 6% of blunt trauma patients have a bony spinal injury, and as many as 20% of patients with a bony injury experience a spinal cord injury. Most injuries tend to occur at C2, C5, C6, or C7. That fits in with the case that Lano shared with his C2 injury. Let's talk about the pathophys. Um, so C-spine injuries and spinal cord injuries are mostly caused by blunt trauma, particularly motor vehicle crashes, falls, diving injuries, and sports-related injuries. They can also be caused by penetrating trauma um, or non-traumatic causes. So you can get C-spine injuries from compression fractures from osteoporosis or cancer, and even from inflammation or infection. Injuries can be caused by different kinds of movements. So they can be flexion or extension injuries. They can be rotational injuries due to lateral bending or compression and distraction. Sajin, why don't you review the anatomy for us for a minute? 
Sure. So the head is very heavy relative to the slender size and shape of the C-spine, which makes fractures of the C-spine, as opposed to other areas of the spine, more concerning for spinal cord injury. If you can imagine injuries to an extremity, when something hurts, we can hold that extremity in an immobilized state kind of close to our body and support it with other parts of our body. But when you have an injury to the C-spine and you have a very heavy head that is needing support, it makes it very easy to injure the underlying spinal cord. The spinal cord itself begins as it exits the skull and is most vulnerable where it is thickest and at areas of maximum mobility, which is the cervical spine. Spinal injuries can be immediately life-threatening due to respiratory or hemodynamic compromise. For example, we're taught the mnemonic C234 keeps the diaphragm off the floor. And that means that some of the innervation for the diaphragm comes from the high cervical spinal roots. So high cervical spine injuries can impact breathing through paralysis of the diaphragm. Let's jump to how to assess these patients. You know, people come on scene, do they have a C-spine injury or not? Let's talk about the assessment. When we're assessing these patients, obviously we want a thorough history and a physical, but some of the things we really are looking for are what was the mechanism of action of the injury? Is there neck pain? Is there any numbness, tingling, or weakness in any of the extremities? And then in certain vulnerable patient populations, injury can occur even with a really minor mechanism of injury. So if they're elderly, above age 65, um, have your kind of radar up, your exam should include a spinal exam as well as a neurological exam, which means you want to assess for kind of weakness, numbness. Now, bony injuries typically present with midline tenderness at the level of the fracture, and they may have an actual step-off deformity. And you should document also any weakness or gross sensory deficits, as well as what the mental status is. These are important as they may change over time, and these changes may guide management of the injury further down the line. A spinal cord injury may immediately present with paralysis, but a lot of times they present subtly with urinary retention, decreased rectal tone, numbness, or paresthesias. Now, severe spinal cord injuries, especially ones that are higher up in the C-spine, can cause neurogenic shock, which is characterized by hypotension and bradycardia. And this is what we saw in the patient Lano described. Suspect a C-spine injury in any patient who is unconscious with a suggestive mechanism of injury or any patient who has axial neck pain or evidence of neurological injury. And also don't forget that not finding any neurological deficits on exam doesn't mean that the patient doesn't have an actual spinal cord injury. Which I think Lano's case highlighted beautifully, right? He had no midline tenderness. He was actually walking after that bike accident. But then, you know, the vital signs did not fit, the hypotension and the bradycardia, and then sure enough, he had a high C-spine injury. Exactly. So let's jump to management. Maddie, let, let's go through that. Sure. In any trauma patient, including those with traumatic C-spine injuries, your first steps in management should always be ABCs. Securing your airway is important in patients who cannot maintain an airway themselves, and you'll need to address a patient's hypotension, whether from neurogenic shock or other blood loss as a result of trauma. Then you will need to think about the best way to immobilize the patient's spine. Traditionally, management of C-spine injuries has focused on immediate spinal immobilization with a cervical collar. The collar should, in theory, protect patients from secondary spinal cord traumas by restricting inadvertent movements of unstable cervical spine injuries. However, we will probably never know how many secondary cervical injuries have really been prevented. 
Lots of studies since 2000 have shown that seat collars actually can cause harm, so are not recommended as routine placement in trauma patients. A study published in the journal Injury in 2011 um, was called Routine Application of Cervical Collars. What is the evidence? These authors stated that it has been conservatively estimated that at least 50 to 100 patients have their neck immobilized for every patient that has a significant cervical spine injury. The risk-benefit analysis lends towards the risks of collars outweighing the benefits. Let's go through some of those C-collar risks with spinal mobilization. We're always thinking about preventing injuries and, and we're worried about the C-spine, but we always forget that there are that C-collar does come with a lot of risks. So Sajin, please take us through the risks. Some of the risks are actually increasing intracranial pressure, local pressure around any wounds that may be around the neck, covering penetrating trauma leading to missed or delayed diagnoses and treatment, delaying or decreasing the success of airway management, including intubation, as well as aspiration, especially in the elderly patients. Another thing that Lano mentioned, you know, placing a patient in the field in spinal immobilization can be difficult on the pre-hospital providers, depending on the environment and the situation that they're in. And so it may not be appropriate for every patient. So obviously there's a lot of risks and benefits to cervical collars. And so that's why we are veering more towards spinal immobilization with blocks and tape nowadays, rather than just the collar with every single case, every single time like we used to do. And so the American Association of Neurological Surgeons and the Congress of Neurological Surgeons, they came out with a joint guideline, and this is published in 2014. This is like a comprehensive update of the guidelines for the management of acute cervical spine and spinal cord injuries. This team recommended spinal immobilization of all trauma patients with a known or suspected spinal cord injury. And that's the problem, right? Because in the field, how do you know it's known or is it suspected? So if they're fully awake, they can communicate, and they're not intoxicated, they have no neck pain or tenderness, they're neurologically intact, and no distracting injury, they should not be immobilized. And they talked about the preferred method of immobilization is the combination of a rigid collar and blocks on a spinal backboard with straps if you suspect a cervical spine injury. And then in that patient, you suspect it. So someone who has neurological deficits or someone who has an obvious C-spine injury, you shouldn't just use blocks and tape alone. They also recommended that spinal immobilization with penetrating trauma is not recommended. So there's a really a new standard of care since this came out in 2014 and 2015 nationally. You know, prior to 2014, they were kind of C-collars for everyone. You got involved in any car accident, you fell off your bike, everybody got a C-collar. And then there was a, a study was published in 2014. And so they released the big position paper, and this is from the National Association of EMS Physicians. And they basically move to support selective application of spinal mobilization to decrease all that unnecessary and potential harm that C-collars do. So one of their famous quotes, and I'll read it to you, is, given the rarity of unstable spinal injuries in EMS trauma patients, the number that might benefit from immobilization to prevent secondary injury is likely extremely small. For each patient who has a potential benefit from immobilization, hundreds of thousands of patients must undergo immobilization with no potential benefit. So basically to find that one case, you're mobilizing thousands, and of those thousands, some of those people are not doing so well. So that's why these new guidelines have come out to selectively immobilize those who we really suspect injury. So now that we've heard all this background, let's go through the SEMSA, the Central California EMS Agency Protocol for Selective Spinal Immobilization. So 
Our protocol outlines a few goals for spinal immobilization, and there are six of them. First is to decrease or minimize the use of backboards. Second is to reserve full spinal precautions to high-risk patients. Third is to reduce complications associated with full spinal immobilization, as well as facilitating extraction, using resources efficiently, and then, of course, increasing patient comfort and satisfaction. So there are a couple terms that we need to know before we go through this protocol. The first is neurological signs or symptoms. So when we're evaluating a patient, things we look for include paresthesias, numbness, weakness, paralysis, as well as asymmetric movements or gait, pain-inhibiting neck movement, or new or worsened signs or symptoms in a patient with some pre-existing deficits. Let's talk about ambulatory patients. These are patients who ambulate with a steady, strong, symmetric gait and do not require assistance to move. If they did have previous gait disturbance, there must be no change in the patient's normal gait. For neck or back support, which we'll talk about once we get into our protocol, this is support that's provided manually or by towels, blankets, or a soft collar to minimize movement, compression, or distraction of the spine. Full spinal precautions include items such as the KED, backboard with blocks, straps, and tape, breakaway flat with blocks and tape, vacuum, splint, etc. And then when we talk about altered mental status, we mean the inability to follow simple commands or inconsistency in following simple commands. So moving to our policies, for our ambulatory patients, if we have ambulatory patients without neurological signs or symptoms, without complaints of neck or back pain, and without neck or back tenderness to palpation, they should be transported in the position of comfort. Ambulatory patients with complaints of neck or back pain or neck or back tenderness, but who don't have neurologic signs or symptoms, should be transported on a gurney in a position of comfort, and their neck or back can be supported as needed. However, ambulatory patients with neurological signs or symptoms after trauma or suspected trauma should get full spinal precautions. For non-ambulatory patients, if they have no neurological signs or symptoms and they have no complaints of neck or back pain, and they have no neck or back tenderness to palpation, they can be transported in a position of comfort. Non-ambulatory patients with complaints of neck or back pain or tenderness without neurological signs or symptoms should be transported on a gurney in a supine position, and their neck or back must be supported until they have been placed on the gurney, either with manual support or a KED. Once on the gurney, their neck or back can be supported as needed. Any non-ambulatory patients with neurologic signs or symptoms after trauma or suspected trauma need full spinal precautions, as well as any non-ambulatory patients with altered mental status. They should also get full spinal and back precautions. For patients with severe blunt multi-system trauma, they should be transported using KED, breakaway flat, or backboard to expedite bed transfers in severely injured patients. If both blunt and penetrating trauma occur, manage as if it's severe blunt multi-system multi trauma, meaning they should be transported using the KED, breakaway flat, or backboard. That's mostly to expedite bed transfers. A couple of things to note for these protocols. If a patient doesn't meet any requirements to be transported in full spinal precautions, this does not mean that they are cleared from having a spinal injury. Significant injuries may still be present and further evaluation is needed. Patients with isolated, non-traumatic, mid-to-low back pain don't need a mobilization of the cervical spine. 
Immobilization of the mid and lower spine is usually sufficient in these cases. The paramedic should consider removing C-spine immobilization on any patient who does not meet the above criteria, but who has already been placed in C-spine immobilization prior to their arrival, for example, by first responders. And if a child's car seat is available, this device can be used for extraction support or for spinal immobilization in kids. Yeah, so this is a great um, protocol that kind of goes through selective spinal mobilization. Like certain people should get it and certain people should not, even if they're all involved in a, a blunt trauma mechanism. So here at Community Regional Medical Center, UCSF Fresno, a group of us physicians got together to look at this new protocol to see if the prior protocol of immobilizing everyone in C-collars, now going to selective immobilization, was missing injuries. Our concern was, are we missing significant unstable C-spine injuries in this population? So we did a study. So in 2013 and 2014, everyone got immobilized. Then this policy came out, and then we looked at two years after, so 2015 and 2016. There's about 600 patients in each group. So it's interesting that there were some protocol misses. So in the prior group, the old way, there was three patients out of 600 that were missed. Basically, a protocol violation, which meant they should have been in C-spine and they weren't put in. And then in the new um, way of doing it, this protocol, there was 18 patients who were missed, 18 out of 600, that should have been put in C-spine and had unstable C-spine fractures, but they were not put in it. But the interesting thing is none of those patients, even though they weren't C-spined, had any new neurological deficits. So the question is, did we really miss them or was it fine because they didn't develop any new neurological deficits? If you look at each of those um, 18 cases individually, we could have caught most of them if the protocol included age greater than 65. That kind of highlights the vulnerable population of the elderly and that they're more inclined to have unstable C-spine fractures. But it is something that to catch those 18, you'd have to immobilize thousands more to catch the 18. And it's probably not worth it, in my opinion, because of the thousands you're going to catch, these few, and those thousands can have lots of complications like we talked about earlier. Well, and to put it in perspective of the EMS system as a whole, I looked at that same data set Danielle looked at for a different quality improvement project uh, where I was looking at scene times. And actually, right after we made this protocol change in C-spine immobilization, our scene times for traumas got cut down dramatically. And so we were actually able to like meet our goal of getting people off the scene um, and transported in less than 10 minutes over 95% of the time at that point. And it was C-spine immobilization. I think that was really slowing down transports. And Lano talked about that. It takes a while. You need experience doing it, getting them immobilized. And as we know, your mortality increases for every minute that you're on scene in a significant injury. And so that is a huge thing. So let's kind of summarize, do some summary take-home points. What do you want people to remember from this podcast? We'll start with Maddie. C-spine injuries can be really life-threatening, and we really need to take them seriously. Sajin. Not all patients require full spinal immobilization. Now we are moving to selective spinal immobilization. Patil. Um, I'd say always go back to your ABCs, and if somebody has an issue with airway, breathing, or circulation, address that before your spinal immobilization. And my take-home point is really kind of respect the mechanism, respect their pain, and if they're altered and if intoxicated at all, you know, keep thinking about that neck. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. 
If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.